0: Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 79. We're in a sermon series right now called Songs of Summer, where we've been looking at what the Psalms tell us about life, about faith, and about who God is. And as we get started this morning, I want to ask you a question How did you first come to learn to pray? How did you first learn to pray? Did you grow up in a home where your parents modeled for you uh, prayer at mealtime, at bedtime? Did they pray for you or with you? Did you attend a church like me growing up where there was recited prayer at each worship service? Or in your Sunday school class, your youth group, your children's ministry, that there was regular prayer moments there led by your leaders? or maybe you came to faith in college and you became a part of a campus ministry or a church-based ministry where prayer was a major focal point, like it is here, where we regularly pray for God to bring more and more people on our campus to come to know Jesus. And we pray for God to send more workers and send the gospel to the nations. At some point in our lives, all of us have watched other people pray, We ourselves have prayed, and we've been told that we should pray. But even though we've been exposed to it, we've practiced it ourselves, we still oftentimes find ourselves wondering how we should pray. Are there any rules to it? Are there topics that are okay to bring up and others not so much? Is there a special formula that we should follow? Can we offend God in prayer? We have questions about prayer because it feels different talking to somebody that we can't see. It feels different talking to the person who who made us, who already knows what we're about to say before we even say it. As we're about to see in Psalm 79, God has not left us in the dark about what it looks like for how we should come to him in prayer. Specifically, how we should come to him in prayer when Life's not going the way we want it to, when things aren't going the way that we think they should. How do we talk to God when we're frustrated, maybe even frustrated at Him, when it feels like God is absent or distant? So we're gonna read together this passage and then we're gonna unpack it. This is verse one. Oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have left the dead bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the sky. The flesh of your own people for the animals of the wild. They have poured out like they've poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem. And there is no one to bury the dead. We are objects of Contempt to our neighbors, of scorn and derision to those that are around us. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob and devastated his homeland. Do not hold the sins against us of past generations. May your mercy come quick to meet us, for we are in desperate need. Help us, God our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us, forgive our sins, for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Before our eyes, make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. May the groans of the prisoners come before you. With your strong arm, preserve those that are condemned to die. Pay back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the contempt that they've hurled at you, Lord. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. From generation to generation, we will proclaim your praise. So when I first read that psalm, I feel uncomfortable. I don't like the idea of asking God to do harmful things to other people like we see in verses 6 and verse 12. I have a hunch that whatever your background, you were not taught to pray this way, asking for your enemies demise. Didn't Jesus teach us to pray for our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Not for their ruin but for their well-being. Another thing that makes me feel uncomfortable is the audacity of the author. He has the nerve to tell God how things should be run. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea of telling God what to do. And with force and unfiltered with raw honesty. And the last thing that makes me uncomfortable is the whole idea of reminding God about something that's already happened. Does the author think that God was asleep when Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed? Or that God forgot about this incident? Or that God doesn't care about his people? We're gonna look at each of these issues as they pop up in order in the Psalm. But first we're gonna start from the beginning with the heading. So the psalm is attributed to Asaph, and we see from the first verse that this was written from an eyewitness of Jerusalem falling to Babylon in 587 B.C. It reads from the vantage point of a survivor who's been left in the city. People who are daily reminded of the devastating loss of their friends and their neighbors, their, their city, most of all their temple, and what that means to them. In verse 1, the author doesn't waste any time. He gets right to the point with what he's thinking about. Oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They've defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have left dead bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the sky. The flesh of your own people for the animals of the wild. First, the author reminds God it's, it's his inheritance, it's his land, his people who've been de- invaded. It's his temple that has been destroyed by the nations, meaning by people who worship other gods. You can hear the outrage, the pain in his tone and in his words. This is so bad that God's people have the daily reminder to look at this tragedy because they've been forced to stay in this city without being able to do anything about it. Not only have God's people been killed by the godless, they've also been left to rot in the open air. Burial would bring some sense of closure, but God's people have been denied that comfort. Verse 3. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there's no one to bury the dead. The image of pouring out blood, it is connected to religious sacrificial acts. For anyone that would have been involved or attended one of the annual festivals in the city of Jerusalem, the sight, the smell of blood would have been impossible to ignore. The temple would have been stained, it would have been covered with the blood of animal sacrifice to God. The author is pointing out here a terrible irony. Jerusalem is covered in blood, but it's not the typical blood of sacrifices to God. Rather, it's covered in the blood of God's people. This graphic imagery that makes many of us uncomfortable, it visualizes for us how intense the suffering was for God's people. It shows us the shame that they felt. They're looking around their city that's lying in ruin. Their temple is defiled, destroyed. The blood of their fellow brothers and sisters is left on the ground as they're left unburied. And they're unable to fix this. They're unable to do anything about it. Verse 4, we are objects of contempt to our neighbors, of scorn and derision to those around us. We can only imagine the verbal torment that God's people were enduring from neighboring peoples who were mocking their misfortune, who were mocking their God, who from the looks of it, apparently he was unable to protect them and save them from the Babylonians. For such gloom and sadness that the author has expressed here in these first four verses, I think there's actually something really helpful for us. And it's related to how the author talks to God, or more specifically, how the author cries out to God. And it's this idea. God can handle what we can't. Because the author doesn't try and sugarcoat his feelings. Instead, he just says it like it is. There's no look-on-the-bright-side kind of language, trying to find a silver lining in all of this mess. Though our circumstances are different, to be sure, from the nation of Israel here, we all have had similar feelings. We've had frustration that things are not going the way we had planned or the way we had hoped. Confusion over why God allows certain things to happen or why, when we need Him most, God seems distant or uncertainty around a job risk, a health issue, a marriage or a relationship trouble. Whatever the case, in all of these scenarios, we are not in control and things are not going the way we'd like them to. Amidst this kind of tension, amidst the confusion, our author turns to God seeking understanding. He's asking God to act. He's saying, God, I don't understand what's happening. When I look around, what I see does not make sense. What is happening is wrong. Can you do something about it? He does not doubt God's ability to save them. He's perplexed at what he's looking at about God's current lack of action. This posture that he has of faith seeking understanding, it positions him to have hope during this really difficult circumstance that he finds himself in. From from the author's language, what I see for us is freedom to talk to God openly, honestly, even with complaints. No matter how angry we are, we can take our feelings to God. We don't need to wordsmith it. We don't need to worry about offending God. Asaph didn't, and neither should we. When we find ourselves in situations like this where we have deep emotions, especially ones with anger and pain, turning to a psalm of lament like this can be really helpful to us. We see examples to follow. We find words that help us speak our emotions so that we don't stay bottled up or stifled inside. We find camaraderie with followers of Jesus or followers of God who've gone before us. They've felt like we felt. They've oftentimes had it to a much stronger intensity, a stronger degree. And they show us the way forward with healthy lamenting. Most of all, a psalm like this, what it helps us do in these troubling times is turn closer to God. Because as we're going to see in the rest of this chapter... The author, he pours out his heart to God about the pain, about the suffering he's experiencing. And he pairs that pain with a fundamental belief that God is just. Even if this world is not, even if what he sees seems counterintuitive to that idea, ultimately, God will make everything right. In our struggles, we are free to cry out to God. And we can be reminded that in the midst of our pain, God is good. Let's keep going with the rest of the psalm. Verse 5. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name? For they have devoured Jacob and devastated his homeland. Do not hold against us the sins of past generations. May your mercy come quick to meet us, for we are in desperate need. This section makes it clear to us that the author knows exactly why Israel is suffering. It's their sin, their faithlessness, their failure to follow and keep God's commands. It's their own fault. The author knows God has every right to be angry with Israel, yet he still questions God. Why? Israel's suffering is so great. Their current circumstances are so bad that it feels like God is absent when he shouldn't be. In their pain and in their confusion, confusion, the psalmist and his audience, they remember the goodness of God Because in asking the question, how long? And will you be angry forever? The psalmist is reminding God of his underlying mercy. That he would not allow a punishment to go beyond its intended consequences. He doesn't ask God to change his circumstances based on his own good behavior. That the people of Israel deserve mercy. He confesses both his generation, both his father's generation... They have not been faithful. His plea for God to act, for God to save them, it's based on God's goodness, on God's mercy. He's asking God to be true to who he is, to be true to his own nature. Israel's hope in a time of great need, our hope in a time of great need, is that God would be merciful because he is merciful. A favorite scripture the nation of Israel would have clung to tightly during a time of great distress like this is Exodus 34. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7. As he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Because based on their past experiences of God's faithfulness, Israel had come to know God personally as merciful. That fundamental belief, that assurance and perspective is what shapes this prayer in Psalm 79. Because the people's need is great. In their own strength, they're powerless to change their circumstances. They are entrusting this situation into the hands of the God that they have personally witnessed be gracious, be compassionate time and time again. And I think there's something that's really helpful for us when we pray, when we turn to God in times like that. And it's to remember who you're talking to. Because our, re- our view of God is really important A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God. When it comes to prayer, who do you think that you're talking to? J.B. Phillips, he wrote a really helpful little book called Your God is Too Small, where he discusses several faulty or incomplete views of God that we often hold. And two of these imperfect views can do great harm to our prayer life. He calls them the resident policeman and the parental hangover. What he's saying is if we view God similar to a strict police officer or an overbearing parent, someone who's constantly looking for the chance to catch us in the wrong and then to hand out harsh punishments, we're going to be performance-based, when it comes to our relationship with God. When we know that we've done wrong, we're not gonna wanna go to God, we're gonna wanna get as far away from him as we can. We're gonna wanna run away from him, hoping to avoid a punishment, avoid an I told you so kind of speech. On the flip side, when we're doing good, we're gonna wanna come to God in pride, thinking that he owes us something or that we've earned his blessing. Neither fear nor pride are what the psalmist had. He came to to God humbly, knowing he and the nation he represented that they'd fallen short. They've missed the mark. He cried out to the God he knew was full of grace, was mighty to save, was against injustice. Those beliefs about who God is gave the author hope that God would come through for them. Jesus gives us, our readers today, a great analogy for how we can view God. And this can be transformative in our prayer life. We can view God as our heavenly Father, just like he did. Before Jesus began his public ministry, before he healed anyone, before he delivered an amazing, awe-inspiring sermon, Jesus hears these words from heaven at his baptism. In him... I am well pleased pleased with what Jesus hadn't done anything yet. Our heavenly father is saying, Jesus, before you get started on your ministry that you've come here to do, you already have my acceptance. You already have my blessing. Jesus began his ministry already accepted by his father, not needing to go and earn his acceptance. In Jesus' model prayer for his disciples, what we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus begins it by stating our Father in heaven. He's saying, before you get to any requests to God, before you lay out any wants or needs, remember who you're talking to. He's your good and perfect heavenly Father who loves you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus connects for us the importance of knowing who God truly is with how that impacts our prayers. He says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In Mark 10, Jesus goes so far as to tell his disciples to come to him like little children. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Our first big takeaway from this psalm was that we can be fully honest with God. He can handle what we can't. And this point is why. He's our heavenly father. He wants to hear from us, his children, his sons, his daughters. So what does it look like to pray or to come to our heavenly father like children? Paul Miller in his excellent book, A Praying Life, he offers a couple of helpful examples. He says, come messy. Come overwhelmed by life. Don't try and fix yourself up or get cleaned up or try and clean up your act before coming to God. Next, act like a little child. Ask for anything, ask for everything. Ask repeatedly, ask honestly and with candor. And last, believe like a child. Children are confident in their parents' love and their power. Those kids trust and believe that their parents want to do good for them. So they freely ask what's on their hearts. They freely share what they're thinking about with no concern of repercussions. Because prayer is not a transaction. It's a relationship. God is not bothered by the psalmist reminding him about what's going on in Jerusalem. God wants to hear from him. God wants to hear his his hopes and dreams, the big things, the little things. The psalmist doesn't need to be embarrassed about coming to God and sounding needy. Because if we, imperfect parents, if we love to give our children good gifts, doesn't our heavenly father all the more want to give them to us? And give better gifts. Our children's requests, no matter how small or how trivial they seem, they tug at our hearts. They call the best out of us. Where do you think that idea, that heartbeat for our kids comes from? Our Heavenly Father, He feels the same way about us. He welcomes us. He cheers us when we come to Him. We see this in Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The criteria we see here for coming to God is a weary and an overwhelmed heart. Have you ever been there? Me too. Come to your heavenly Father just as you are, as his children. Back to Psalm 79 to see how it ends. This is picking it up in verse 9. Help us, God our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us, forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Before our eyes, make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. May the groans of the prisoners come before you. With your strong arm, preserve those condemned to die. Pay back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the contempt that they have hurled at you, Lord. Here in the remainder of Psalm 79, we see the request for rescue for forgiveness, for restoring Israel, for punishing their enemies. All grounded. All of those requests are grounded in the overarching desire to see God's name glorified like it had been. But what are we to do with verse 12? Pay back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the contempt that they've hurled at you, Lord? In verse 6, Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. This was what I was referring to earlier that just doesn't sound right. It sounds vindictive, vengeful. Calling on God to punish or curse an enemy sounds very different than Jesus' teaching to pray for our enemies in Matthew 5. Paul's teaching to bless those who persecute you and do not take revenge from Romans 12. This psalm and one similar to it are called imprecatory psalms, and they do feel foreign to readers today like us. While it is true because of the cross of Jesus, Christians will respond to persecution differently than the nation of Israel did. But we don't want to dismiss this psalm outright because there is a lot that it gives us that we can learn. First, it tells us that God hates injustice. The way that Babylon and the surrounding nations have been treating Israel, it's wrong. It's an offense to how God created his world to work. The psalmist is asking God to punish evildoers, to restore the victims of injustice calls for justice. They are good. They are right. They remind us of how important it is to be in a right relationship with God, in a right relationship with one another. I have in no way experienced anything like the violent mistreatment that our psalmist is describing here. Most of us here in the western world have not personally found this. Psalms like this can help us who haven't experienced it, to feel the desperation, feel the pain, the helplessness that our brothers and sisters who have experienced it, that they feel on a regular basis. Psalms like this, they can open our eyes, they help us to see, help us to hear, they challenge our ambivalence towards persecution of Christians around the world. We can pray these psalms as hatred against the evils of this world and pray them as longings for just relationships and right treatment of one another. Another important observation about the helpfulness of imprecatory psalms like this one is the psalmist actually lets God decide how to respond. He does not personally retaliate. To be sure, We have read his recommendations to God on how to take revenge, how to fix this mess. He lets God know his thoughts and his feelings, and they're harsh. To his credit, so are the living conditions that he finds himself in. But with that said, he never tells the people of Israel to take up arms, to take vengeance into their own hands. He entrusts the response into his heavenly Father. This idea of revenge, of getting even, it comes really natural to us. It seems right. It seems fair to pay back back people for the offenses that they have done to us. It almost feels reflexive to want to treat other people the way that they've treated us. That's what makes the psalmist's response of surrendering his will, surrendering the outcome of the situation to his heavenly father so amazing, so inspiring for us. Because it's not easy to repay evil with good. It's easy to repay evil with evil. In this prayer, the psalmist is giving this matter over to God. He's acknowledging God alone knows the correct response. To this circumstance. When he surrenders the response, he's also surrendering the outcome to the situation. Will God extend his compassion and his mercy to Israel's enemies? Will he bring swift justice and now? Or will Israel have to wait for God to act? If they have to wait, for how long? That's the risk, that's the leap of faith in surrendering our response into the hands of God. The author's motivation for asking God to act, to save his people, to punish his enemies, those were all tied to who he knew God to be, that God was faithful to his promises. He was generous in mercy, patient with his children, and he was a defender of the vulnerable. That's who the psalmist knew God to be, Who do we know God to be? Because of the cross of Jesus, one thing that we know that the author of this psalm didn't know is how God would ultimately respond to his plea, to his cry for God to save him. An imprecatory psalm like this, it shows us the natural and human response to sin, injustice, and evil. With justice in mind, with fairness in mind, we want to see our enemies get what they deserve. But here's the twist. God's response to this prayer is not to hand out individual punishments and curses that each person deserves. For all people are guilty and all are deserving of the very curses that this psalm is calling for. If God gave the psalmist exactly what he asked for, both Israel and their enemies would have been punished. Instead, God's response is to come to earth on a rescue mission, to save us from our sins, and to defeat evil and to right all wrongs. God first responded by sending Jesus as a suffering servant to receive the punishment that we all deserve. God will respond again, a second time, and this one will be final by sending Jesus as the warrior king, dressed in white. That's more like what the psalmist was picturing and asking for. And Jesus as our warrior king will deliver us from all evil. He will make everything right, right as God designed it. While we wait for that great day of our Lord's return, We let psalms like this teach us how to pray, teach us how to grow our trust in our Heavenly Father who made us, who knows us. He hears our prayers and He loves us. We grow our care for our brothers and sisters, both here and around the world. We pray for them. We hurt with those who suffer injustice. We grow our gratitude for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is both the suffering servant and the warrior king. When we are wronged by others, we look to the cross. We remember that we too are guilty before God. What our enemies deserve, we deserve as well. The justice of God has been completely satisfied in Jesus. Therefore, we pray for our enemies. We do not wish them ill. We repay evil with good. We treat other people the way that Jesus has treated us. We wait expectantly with hope for the day of our Lord's return, where verse 13, our concluding verse, will be true for a global people of God who are all under Jesus' reign. This is a far bigger, far greater picture than our psalmist could have ever imagined, but it is so true. Then, on that great day, We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. From generation to generation, we will proclaim your praise. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are in awe that you can hear us, that you not only can hear us, you want to hear us, because you want to hear from your children we know we are tempted sometimes to run away from you or we're tempted to try and uh, say things just the right way because we're afraid of what might happen. Would you remind all of us that you are a heavenly father who wants to hear from his children. You love us, you care for us, and you are there with us no matter what we are facing. Would you grow our hearts for our neighbors? Would you grow our love and compassion for those who are suffering? Would you remind us of how we can play a part in your reconciling work of helping this world know you as King Jesus, as our Heavenly Father? Amen.